I Read Comics, show number 76. Can somebody explain to me why the Adobe Updater software for Photoshop and InDesign and all that stuff takes like two hours to update and sometimes it hangs and doesn't update at all. This is on my Macintosh. This used to happen and then I thought they fixed it and now it's still happening and this thing has been updating for like an hour. I don't understand it. Anyway, so Minx got canceled. I don't think that was a big surprise to anyone because DC never really put that much behind it, but they canceled the line, which is too bad. It was a good idea that was incompetently executed, I think, and I feel bad for all of the creators who were involved in it who have now had the rug yanked out from under them. But as Leah Hernandez says, keep making comics, make them on your own, don't depend on these people to do it for you. It's coincidental that I finally got around to reading The Plain Janes. I decided to do an all-library review show, so I went to the library and I checked out a ton of stuff. And I got Plain Janes because they had it, I'd never seen it there before. Filed in the graphic novel section, not in the young adult section, which I think was um, always part of the problem with the books themselves. I've been reading a lot online about why it didn't do so well in stores, and some people thought part of the problem was that because of the size of the books, it was always shelved with the manga, and it's not manga, not at all like manga. It's much more a young adult kind of thing, especially Plain Janes. And by virtue of its very size, maybe the comic book people in the stores and also in bookstores like Barnes and Noble or Borders, for example, just didn't know where the hell to put it. And a book like Plain Janes was clearly young adult and not at all graphic novels, superhero stuff, and not at all manga either. So I don't know. That was uh, probably a confusing thing. So I liked Plain Janes. I thought it was pretty good. So this is first volume of Plain Janes. I heard that there's a new one that just came out called Plain Janes in Love, which I haven't seen yet. But this is by Jim Rugg, who did the art, and Cecil Castellucci. Now, it's a girl named Cecil, and it says on the back, Cecil Jean Castellucci. So I don't know why her first name is a boy name, but it is. And it's her first graphic novel. And I thought it was pretty good for what it was. It's I, I could see how this kind of book would be really appealing to the young adult girl audience. The basic story is that there's a girl named Jane. She grows up is in high school in a a city, metro city, and there's a terrorist attack which affects her because she's in it, close to it. She doesn't physically get hurt, but emotionally it's pretty damaging. Her parents freak out and they move to a suburb a long, long way away. And she's very bored. So she goes to this new high school and doesn't have any friends and doesn't really fit in with the other kids and eventually makes friends with another group there of I'll use the word they use, which is outcasts, and it's all girls named Jane, although they spell their names differently, and they're all girls who don't really fit in, so she decides that their mission should be to make art and make free art that everybody can see and do it in a merry prankster sort of way. So do it in public places and do it anonymously and do fun, quirky things like dressing up gnomes and leaving them around and just doing essentially things to make people laugh, tying big bows on stuff. And 
they do this. They do this very successfully. Although how they get away with it, I'm not quite sure. I guess that's the comic booky part, right? That nobody would notice people, four girls in the middle of the night doing these huge art installations, but whatever, take that on faith. And the people in charge of this town get more and more angry and there's curfews and the principal tries to get them to turn against each other, kind of Spartacus-like, and uh, they don't really get caught in the end. Um, and the art continues to happen, which is a good thing. And there's a subplot about Jane wanting to connect with a guy who was caught in the explosion and she has his art notebook and that's what inspires her to say that art saves and everybody should have art. And there's a nice resolution to that story as well. There's also a sub-subplot about her maybe hooking up with the one guy who seems like he's a nice loner, outsider, smart guy, which kind of doesn't go anywhere, but that's okay. Um, I, I thought that people have criticized this book, saying that real kids don't act like this, and I think that's probably true. They don't, but I don't think that's the point of this book. It's not supposed to be a slice of life. It's supposed to be what you might act like if you were Jane and you had it, you had your enough of your shit together in high school to act like that because nobody does have their shit together like that in high school. Everybody pretends they do, but nobody actually does. That's why it's high school. You're 13, 14, 15 years old. That's the way it goes. So I liked it from that point of view is that it can say to girls that age, this is what you could be like if you had your shit together and it's not all bad. The things that are not good about it is that it's it doesn't break any boundaries. The Janes are not unique. They are types. They're all types. So Jane, our main character, is the spunky, short-haired, outcast, art girl type who's really cute at the same time. And then there's the drama queen Jane, who's the one who's slightly overweight. And then there's the geeky Jane. And then there's the tall, athletic Jane. And... The way they're drawn, of course, none of them are ugly. They're all cute in their way, and they're all within acceptable range, so none of them is really an outcast. Um, they all have more or less normal interests. They just choose to express them in socially somewhat non-acceptable ways. So there's not any rules being broken there. There's the one token gay guy who becomes friends with them, who is very much a type you know, kind of drama clubby, loud, slightly effeminate gay guy. But at least there was one gay person in here. They all are pretty white looking. I think the drama queen Jane is supposed to be uh, Asian. She looks kind of Asian, but it's a black and white book, so you can't actually tell by um, skin coloring. And there's really very few um, black people in here at all or other ethnic types. And, you know, maybe that's true to form in the suburbs. It's mostly a white community. So whatever, it would have been nice to see a little more diversity here. So as I said, I don't think it breaks any rules, but I do think it's kind of neat to tell this story. And although the romance between Jane and her, her outcasty kind of loner guy is there, it's not a huge part of the story, which is good. So I'm glad the story was not all about whether she gets a boyfriend or not. It could have been cool if that hadn't been part of the story at all, but maybe that is asking too much of a story like this. So I thought it was good, 
And I would be really curious to know what the target audience thought of this book, not in numbers, but in reviews. So maybe I will take some time to look around and see if I can find some actual reviews on the web written by actual girls who are 15, 16 years old who read this and if they thought that it was good or not. I'd also like to know what the new Plain Jane's about. I'm a little scared by the title Plain Jane's in Love. And I really hope it's not all about them looking for boyfriends, but I suspect it's better than that, that it's being in love with something else, which would be really kind of cool. So yay for plain Janes and too bad about Minx. Um, I I never got a chance to read the other titles. If they do have them at my library, I'll probably check them out. Some of them from the little previews that I saw and the images looked like they relied far too heavily on the spunky outcast girl type and I don't know maybe that was the point but as has been said many times before it's frustrating to see the same type in these books that to be the successful happy outcast girl you have to be cute and have a good haircut and sort of short and slight and um, feisty but not obnoxious but not really strong you know there's a difference between like feisty and spunky and um really confident and not having to uh, when you're feisty and spunky you're still doing it in that feminine way where you're not really challenging anything and you still know your place as a woman which is not equal to men so you get to have your little space to be feisty and spunky but you're not really challenging anything although i have to say in this book at least the janes do kind of take on the authority Um, but they themselves as people don't really challenge the authority. Their actions do, but as people, they don't, I guess that's the difference for me. And I'd like to see more of the actual people challenging the rules and and living outside the boundaries. So that's it on plain Janes. A couple other things that I wanted to mention that I've seen really recently. One is that I was flying recently and I saw the speed racer movie on the airplane and it was still really, really cool. Yay. Speed racer. I also pre-ordered the Iron Man DVD, which comes in two whole discs, and I can't wait to see what the extras are, and that should be showing up from Amazon in my mailbox any day now. I've also been watching more stuff on TV, and they're showing on a Cartoon Network, I guess, this new thing called Star Wars Clone Wars Animation, which is a spinoff of the movie that was in the movie theater recently, and I didn't go see the movie because there's no way I'd pay to see that. I'm kind of curious to see what the TV show is like. There's a girl character in it who looks exactly like I was just talking about, that feisty, spunky, girly character who's really cute and tiny and fighty, but doesn't really challenge anything by her mere existence. And um, the thing about it is, you know, I was watching the preview for it the other night. The thing that doesn't work about Star Wars as a cartoon is that it's not meant to be a cartoon. Star Wars, when it was a movie, was really cool because it was people doing these outrageous things and having the special effects help them be superhuman. But when you turn Star Wars into a cartoon, it loses all of its specialness because you can do anything in a cartoon. So it doesn't, it's not special anymore. It suddenly lost everything that made Star Wars good, which was real people with these fantastic 
lightsabers and spaceships and stuff. And the special effects in the movie were good enough that you believe that it could be real. And Lucas went to such a lot of trouble to make sure that all of the mechanical stuff looked realistic, that the spaceships look old and beat up, that everything looked kind of dusty when they were down on the planet that the evil stuff was all black and shiny and looked really evil. And when you see it in a cartoon, it completely loses all that. And it looks dull and boring and just like every other, you know, stupid kids cartoon that's on TV. So I don't know kind of what they're doing with this, but I don't think it's going to be worth watching. And I don't think they got any of the real vocal talent to do it. In fact, the woman who does the voice of whatever that girl's name is supposed to be, the the, the young feisty fighty girl is terrible. She's a terrible voiceover artist. Sorry, maybe it's not her. Maybe it's the direction, but I don't think it's good. So I can't really recommend that. Um, I have been watching speed racer cartoons and I'll talk about that in a little bit. It seems there's a lot of speed racer convergence happening right now, which is never a bad thing. So let me take a musical break and I'll be back with something else. <laughs> section of the show, I have a special guest, not actually a co-host, but a, a special guest nonetheless. And those of you who listen to the Star Trek podcast, the Look at His Butt podcast, will know my guest as um, the man from New Zealand, our man in New Zealand, Gregory. Hi. Hi there. It's How's good, it going? Good for you to join me today. Oh, thanks for much. So I wanted to talk about a couple of things with you. One is that we watched those Speed Racer cartoons the other day, and you never saw them before, right? You never, had never ever seen never them. seen them before. And I had seen them when I was a kid, and then not for a long, long, long time until mm. we just watched them. So, um, wasn't it true what I said to you that that the cartoons were exactly like the movie? Uh, I think the movie was exactly like the cartoon. <laughs> yeah. It was. It was like just so close. Mm. It was as if it was a scene for scene. Well, that would be really good fun to pull out scenes <laughs> and, and just compare them. I wonder if there's a sort of a director's commentary that um, <laughs> on the movie that says, yes, we pulled this scene from uh, episode three yeah. of the cartoon. Um, so the cartoons um, I got on a disc, and um, they're just as crude as I remember them being. Mm-hmm. As, as Mike Nelson from Mystery Science Theater said, it's basically like being shown uh, drawings being shown to you briskly. <laughs> <laughs> That's about the level of animation that goes into them. Yeah. But I still really like them. It's oh, still yeah. it's crazy and it's fun. And the thing I love about the Speed Racer cartoons is it's what Japanese people thought America was like in 1960 
63 or whenever they did these 67 or 68 it's this very skewed view of um both the characters and the way they dressed and mm -hmm. also the terrain mm -hmm. so what the one we were watching was the first one which was in two parts and it was called the great plan and it was about speed striking out to be a racer even though pops didn't want him to and he's riding um he's racing in this thing called the the sword mountain race mm. which takes him past um volcanoes yes multiple volcanoes and also the grand canyon yeah and woods Mm -hmm. And and a big grassy field that went on for miles and miles. And the, uh, well, it was more like like a bamboo field. I thought when it, when, <laughs> he was, when he was cutting it with his um, two horizontal blades uh -huh. that came out of his car, uh -huh. um, that it looked like bamboo when it hit them, hit him in the head. <laughs> so the, I mean, is that what they really thought that all of America was like? That there would be a place where all those things would happen? Yeah, when, I guess so. I yeah. don't know, but it was really good and. Um, I'm, I was asking you if you were worried that Speed wasn't going to win the race. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was on the edge of my seat, <laughs> literally. <laughs> it's great. So the interesting part, well, the funny part was the great plan um, relates, that's a story, that's the, the title, new, yes. uh, relates to the plans of the next model of uh, Mac 5. 5. Yes. Um, that his father was designing at the time, and he he took it to the the big wigs mm -hmm. and tried to sell it to them, or and they just wanted it, mm -hmm. and so he said, "Oh well, bugger you guys, well, I'll do it <laughs> do it myself." And um, to hide the plans because he was getting um, lots of threats, he thought it was a really cunning idea to draw them in invisible ink <laughs> on the windscreen of the Mac Five yeah. that he already had. Yeah. That was good. That was a good idea. That's really smart. And then it turned out that during the race, when the bad guys were about to steal the wind, the windshield, uh, speed broke it yeah. so that they couldn't get it. And then it turned out in the end that it didn't even matter because Pops had it all in his head. Yeah. So, you know, Pops, bit of communication there. Um, you know, the plans aren't that important. <laughs> Don't worry about getting killed, Speed. Uh, it's interesting to me that we, we saw in the store... Um, they make a novelization, like novelization. There's a book with words in it <laughs> for young adults, for kids, yeah. of the Speed Racer cartoons. And the very first one was that episode, The Great Plan. Uh, and it's all rendered into, you know, text that eight-year-olds would enjoy well, reading. Good. Do you think the writer um, managed to fill in all the plot holes and, and logical problems that... I haven't, had a, I haven't had a chance to read it, okay, well, but maybe I'll good. have a look at that and mm -hmm. see. Maybe I'll read a little excerpt from it on the show so people can get the flavor of it. But i got to say, it does have the most kick-ass theme song. Yeah. yeah it's totally great. great. And in looking through the extras on the disc, I was also pleased to see that the guy who was responsible for bringing Speed Racer to America, a guy named Peter Fernandez, uh, worked on Courage the Cowardly Dog, one of my other favorite cartoons. So that's completely awesome that he was doing that in 67 and still working on Courage, you know, in, mm. the, in the 2000s. So that was cool. And are you going to mention the other convergence? Of the <laughs> um, they only had like four people doing voices, and Peter Fernandez was one of them. And they had one woman named um, Corinne Orr who did all the female voices, which included Trixie and Speed's mom. And her history was that she'd been an actor in Canada. She's Canadian at Stratford at the same time that Christopher Plummer and William Shatner was there. So I would definitely put her on the list of women that William Shatner slept with over yeah. the long, yeah. long course of his Well, her photo on the internet, she's smiling so much. She it's, is. It's, she's pretty cute, so of course. Yeah. Of course he slept with her. Yeah. So anyway, that's, that's the Speed Racer stuff.
So why don't you tell me about something that you read that I didn't? Well, I wanted to show you uh, a couple of issue ones of miniseries that mm-hmm. uh, have just come out recently. One's by Marvel mm-hmm. and one's by Boom Studios. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to show you the Marvel one because, you know, a lot of cool stuff happens outside the main titles of the Marvel and DC I completely universe. agree. I, I have reviewed some of the other worlds things and mm-hmm. the what if things. I like those much better actually than Not only <laughs> yeah, not only that, but just the the, the smaller characters stories mm-hmm. can be really, really good. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't know if this one's gonna be good, but I've just read uh, it's Marvel mm-hmm. and it's called Submariner mm-hmm. dot dot <laughs> the depths. Um, it's a one of five. This is uh, the first of five issues. And uh, just to sort of compare or contrast, um, the one by Boom Studios is called Challenger Deep. Mm-hmm. And I sort of wanted to look at those together because they're both underwater stories. They're both submarine <laughs> stories. And just see how they both handled them. Mm-hmm. So uh, the Marvel comic, it's by Peter Milligan. And the art's by Esad Rubik. Peter Milligan related to Spike, I don't. <laughs> I don't so he so. said Ribic is the guy who did the art for um, Surfer Requiem, which yeah. we both liked yeah, quite a lot. Yeah, that was really, really good. good, and it's a sort of a painted style. Yeah, uh, although his name always reminds me of like an anagram or something. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it's a real. Yeah, name. or a Rub- Rubik's cube. <laughs> they weren't as popular as a Rubik's cube. <laughs> um, <laughs> from Eastern Europe. <laughs> And the other one, uh, the story is by Andrew Crosby and Andy Schmidt, mm-hmm. uh, with the art by Chi. A single named person. Yeah. That always makes me nervous. Yeah. It's well, like, could, you should be nervous. Could they not afford another name or something? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so the, the Submariner, the interesting thing about the Submariner one is that, you know, the Submariner, mm-hmm. Namor. Oh, Namor. He's a superhero. I dig Namor. He's mm-hmm, cool. Mm-hmm. Well, in this one, the setting is one where he's not really known of, mm-hmm. and um, he's he's sort of like a myth, mm-hmm. like a um, like the Kraken or the, or the Loch Ness monster, maybe. Yep, and he's um, he's been a myth for quite a while, you know, like um, since the Titanic at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and so sailors and submariners um, tell the tales of Namor. And they're quite, they're all scared of him. So does this take place now? Is it current day or is it future? It's in the past. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> when, when, okay, when in the past? I don't know. Well, it's, it's, <laughs> I, I think it's actually an alternative universe to um, the normal Marvel continuity. Okay. But don't quote me on that. Okay. Yeah, I'll have to wait and see. Um, I mean, you can see some of these outside shots mm-hmm. of cities where there's huge really cool looking zeppelins yeah. above and uh, you know you don't see many zeppelins normally in the Marvel no. universe the, the, so this is an interior where are they at the UN or something or some sciencey place sciencey place uh, it's very art deco looking a lot of rounded corners on yeah. the architecture here yeah. so it, it's kind of like a deco 30s zeppelin things just move forward in time yeah, pretty much, yeah. and it's 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 kind of a Victorian steampunk kind of look mm-hmm. in a way. Mm-hmm. I mean, check out the the guy's big mutton chops yeah. and sideburns and the the big moustache there. Mm-hmm. And so the plot is that um, a, a group of a con- conglomerate of <laughs> people have got uh, this scientist um, to go out and find Atlantis, mm-hmm. and um, 
they've got him. He's an explorer. He's been around the world, sort of um, saying, disproving a lot of myths, and um, so I guess they they got him so that they he, he could have a unbiased opinion on mm-hmm. on what what to look out for. Unfortunately, they also supplied him with a submarine crew, mm-hmm. which is the most um, um, unskeptical <laughs> crew you could have. Um, and so when they start to get the um, Namor or something as is out there, the crew goes nuts and says, <laughs> just goes, they're terrified. And you know, you'd think you'd sort of um, maybe have that part of the HR department's um, <laughs> little list of things. Uh-huh. Yeah. To, to not be terrified idiots? Yeah, yeah. Um, Especially when they're going out to find... To look for something creepy. Really yeah, scary, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so I, I just just thought you might like to see it because I think it's a really good story. I, I love the art. The mm-hmm. art is really fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, a, it's an interesting take. It's going to be an interesting take on mm-hmm. Submariner. Um, if you look at the, um, the last page, um, it shows um, what's the cover of next week, and it's... Mm-hmm. Uh, in this one, Submariner isn't shown at all. He doesn't um, come into the story. But okay. he looks very uh, vampirish. Mm. So the whole first story is them going down to the depths. Creepy things happen, but Namor's not actually in the story yet. But they talk about him during the whole yeah, story. Yeah, it's, it's, all, it's all sort of built up, building okay. up the plot. Mm-hmm. And, um, it, it you know, sometimes those don't hold your interest. Yeah. But this one has, because, you know, who knows how... The, how Namor will appear next mm-hmm. time. As opposed and opposed to that, we've got Challenger Deep, which is a similar submarine story. Um, some peril happens on a submarine. Mm-hmm. Something to do with in the Marianas Trench, um, nuclear, um, methane gas, world ending, that sort of stuff. And someone's probably got to go down and, and sort it out. But um, check out the art. Do you like that art? No, I don't. So here are some scenes on a submarine, and it's, in again, overcolored as most comics are these days. And the people are really ugly. Yeah, they're the very, first thing very ugly. I notice, and it's also, um, there's, at this, <laughs> this is a way, weird way to describe it, but at once there's not enough detail and yet too much detail. There's too much detail of the wrong things. Yeah. So the individ- the people's faces are really bland and, and don't have a lot of expression on them except very uh, big expressions. Like there's a guy who's angry and his face is all scrunched up and mm. his eyes are screwed up like that. But that's about it. There's no subtlety in it. And yet if you look at some parts of their clothing, there's a lot of attention being paid to the wrinkles in their clothing, yeah. which I think is the wrong place to put that kind of detail on. And I mean, can you tell which character is which? No, it's very hard for me to tell them apart, except that one guy's got a hat and the other one doesn't. Yeah. So yeah. that, that I, doesn't help me a lot. I guess that guy is that guy. <laughs> but is this guy that guy? I don't know. Yeah. And hello, backgrounds. Yeah, there's no backgrounds in this at all. So this is a very bad comic as far as the art's concerned. <laughs> and, you know, to be honest, isn't that really what comics is about? The art's, <laughs> art's got to be good for it to start with. And it's a comic full of really, really ugly people. And lots of text. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's a that. whole page that's just... How many w- balloons is that? One, two, 
three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. So it's about nine word balloons for this one guy. He's basically acting like the exposition police yeah. in this scene to give the background on what's happening. And it's a lot of telling and no showing at all. Oh, and it goes even more. Yeah. He's John Galt. He just keeps talking and talking and talking. Yeah. So uh, th- this is, um, there's something terrible happened. Um, oh no, let's go and deal with it. Mm-hmm. But instead of just saying that, um, there's two pages of the committee talking about it. Mm-hmm. And they've got to get the dude. Both, both comics deal with, you know, there's the guy they have to get who's gonna, who's great at it. Mm-hmm. He's going to sort it out. Um, so I can't recommend this comic. So what happens at the end? Nothing? It just goes all red. There's a uh, a red alert inside the comic inside the submarine and everything turns red because it's only lit by the emergency lights which i don't know if that's actually true but it it seems to me that if you were on a submarine and suddenly the only lighting was red lights it would make it very hard to get your work done well yeah you couldn't read a book you couldn't couldn't see the switches (laughs) what if what if the lighting was already there are only red light bulbs and you were looking at a control panel and you had to tell the difference between an orange light and a red light yeah, that could be a bit of a problem. Yeah. Well, here's the contrast. Here's, in um, the Namor story, here's, an, here's something dramatic happening on the boat. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at the faces. Drama. Yeah. And, okay, maybe in reality everything really is red in submarines. But that's, a, that's TV and movies. This is a comic. Mm-hmm. And so a comic can go outside reality. Mm-hmm. And they can show um, emotion in these... Um, scenes with color there could be amazing greens and and blues and all sorts of things and still get the feeling that it's an emergency happening mm-hmm. but it, it still holds your eye where three or four pages of everything being read it really it's really tiresome i agree that's not really comics that's no. sort of more like movies there was a recent in in one of the uh, conan books that i got recently one of the the new dark horse ones there are about three or four pages that are all red wash mm-hmm but I found that very effective ah. because Conan is actually inside a monster. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you don't know that until the very end when he bursts out. And so you're wondering for about two or three pages, why the hell is everything red on yeah. here? And then you're as it goes further into it, he's having these weird mystical visions and everything. And at the end, he bursts out of a, I don't know, I think it was another, oh, it was a toad. It wasn't a giant snake. It was a giant red frog mm-hmm. that he was inside of. And then it all makes sense. And you go, oh, he was inside the frog. That's why it was red. So I thought that was good. That sounds good. Yeah. yeah. And that guy's really ugly. He's the ugliest man in the world. <laughs> he looks like he's been drawn with um, pastel crayons. Yeah. Is what I would say. Yeah. Yeah. And he's just, he's bald and he's got a squinty face. He looks like uh, the prototypical cranky guy yeah. that who is the hero. Yeah. Cranky yeah. guy hero. That's that's the new thing, isn't it? Yeah. Or, or it has been quite, yeah, yeah, quite a while. Yeah. Cranky guys who are heroes. Yeah. Can't have anybody good natured anymore. Just cranky guys. So here's the last page of each comic. And... I don't want to read this one anymore. <laughs> That's the Boom Story Studios one. But the other one, this is really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it really gets me interested to see what's next. And there's a cool picture where it says next issue. And yeah. it's Namor uh, grabbing a guy. And it's in the water because there's water bubbles coming out of the human guy's mouth. And Namor looks pretty pissed off. And the human guy is reaching toward the camera, very Kirby-esque, yeah. with his hand about five times the size of the rest of him. And that looks pretty scary. Yeah. So, there you go. 
there's uh, two comics, one from Marvel, mm-hmm. one from Boom. I totally recommend the Marvel one, mm-hmm. but the Boom one, not so much. Okay, well, that's good. Well, thanks for uh, providing some commentary on that, because you're right, I would never have picked up those comics, mm. but it's good to, to get outside the box that's right. a little bit. Okay, I'm going to take another break, and then um, we'll be back with something else. segment is called Three Things by Neil Gaiman. I haven't read anything by Neil Gaiman, I don't think, which is probably a bad thing. I don't know. He's written so much. I've never read any Sandman. I've never even read his novels, although I have one of them. One of my friends has loaned me American Gods, and there it is sitting on my night table, not read yet. So I don't really know what he's like aside from all the things that I've read about him and I know that he's a cool guy and that he's written lots of great stuff but I haven't actually read anything he's written so now I've read some stuff and these both came from the library the first thing is the thing I didn't like very much and it's called the facts in the case of the departure of Miss Finch and he wrote the story but it wasn't adapted by him for this particular graphic novel and this was published as a graphic novel the art was by Michael Zuli and the lettering and script adaptation is by Todd Klein and this was published by Dark Horse and it came into the library and was marked as new and I thought oh I'll get it and see if it's any good and I just thought it was really anticlimactic it was a story that didn't really go anywhere at all and What it felt like to me was kind of a Neil Gaiman story that was kind of trying to be a Harlan Ellison story, and it didn't really have a payoff at the end. So to briefly recap the story, it's about Neil Gaiman and this little adventure that he takes with his good friend Jonathan Ross and his wife Jane, and the 
fourth person in their party who's a woman that they call Miss Finch, even though that's not her real name. And the four of them are supposed to go out in London to do something, and they end up at a circus, not a trapeze in big tents circus, but kind of a circus macabre sort of thing in these underground cellars that they have in London. And they are there and they see this circus and it's kind of cool and creepy at the same time. And Miss Finch starts off by being a fairly unlikable character. Um, and it's never clear why she's there. Although Jane, Jonathan Ross's wife, keeps saying, oh, it's an obligation and I have to do this and I can't get rid of her. And she doesn't seem all that unpleasant. Uh, and as the evening wears on, she becomes more interesting and we find out she's a biogeologist and knows a lot about historic and prehistoric animals. And at the very end of the circus, they're supposed to see this thing called the Cabinet of Wishes Fulfilled and Miss Finch is the one who's chosen to be the participant from the audience about this. And at the very end, they walk into a very large room, which is uh, bigger than could be in these underground cellars in London. And there's Miss Finch, and she's got two saber-toothed tigers with her. And apparently this was her wish fulfilled. And one of the tigers leaps onto uh, another spectator, and she pulls it off and then kind of goes back into the mists. And then everybody leaves. And then the story is over. So we're never quite sure how that happened or why that happened or what happened to Miss Finch. And that was the end of the story. So I really didn't get what the point of it was supposed to be, except as a fantasy story. Neil Gaiman says it's partly true. So I don't know what the real story was. Probably not a woman who disappeared and got turned into, you know, Sheena, Queen of the Jungle or something. The art is pretty nice. It's very realistic, but watercolor painty looking ish, which is, is neat. And I liked the way that the circus people were drawn. There's a woman who gets knives thrown at her and then is fake killed. And then there's a big monster that's a really strong guy. And then there's a beautiful trapeze act in the dark with people with phosphorescent costumes on. So it looks like they're really flying and fake guillotines and all kinds of things that you would expect to see in a, in a circus. And then this thing at the end with Miss Finch. And so that's it. It's kind of a, here's a weird thing that happens story without much point to it. And I just felt like there wasn't enough of a payoff to make it worth getting to the end of the story. I was reading it and going, okay, I wonder what's going to happen. And then really nothing happened. And I will say that it seemed kind of cheap to end it with Miss Finch in her transformed state. She goes from uh, the way she's dressed in the beginning is very, um, almost like a nun. She's wearing a very high collared shirt and she's got a big black coat that's wrapped around her and a black hat that's kind of pulled down on her head and black glasses. She looks very severe. I think we're supposed to think that she's very repressed, um, that she's no fun, you know, because obviously if a woman isn't dressed really sexily like Jane, who has flaming red hair and a really low cut blouse, so you can see her tits from the very first scene that she's in, that's what you see are her tits kind of spilling out of her dress. And Miss Finch is the opposite because she's all you know, repressed and bundled up. And then of course, when she has her wish fulfilled, she's almost naked because, you know, that's how you have to draw women is basically naked. She's wearing kind of a loincloth that's made out of some kind of animal skin that I can't tell. And I have to say the dialogue is ridiculous. Sorry, not the dialogue, but the caption. It says, I wonder to this day where they got the costume. What little there was of it fitted her perfectly. I don't see how you can say that about a loincloth that's 
a belt with a piece of fabric in the front and in the back. How is that a costume that fitted her perfectly? Maybe Neil had something else in mind when he was writing this, but it, it's pretty ridiculous um, bit of narration to go alongside the illustration as she's drawn here. So, you know, now now she's not repressed anymore and she's all sexual because she's showing her tits and you can see her, her ass when she bends over and she's got control over these wild animals. So obviously that was her wish was to be freed, freed from her repressive um, societal thing with her black clothes and her glasses. And I'm, probably she can't even see now because she doesn't have glasses anymore. And, and even stereotypically her hair, which had been kind of tightly bunned up in the back, is now loose and flowing over her shoulders. Boy, talk about stereotypes. So there you go. Those are the reasons why I didn't think this was a very good story. So I t cannot recommend it. Also, it's printed in hardcover, and I think it must have been, it's like 14 bucks for this thing. I don't think it's worth it. Let's move on to something that I did like a lot more, which also came from the library, and this is the trade paperback of Black Orchid. So this was by Neil and Dave McKean, and this came out a while ago. Let's see if I can find the date for it. Um, 91, originally published 1989, actually. So there were four, three or four issues that got collected into this trade paperback, and I really liked this. I thought this was cool. When I picked it up, I didn't know anything about Black Orchid, of course, I googled it and subsequently found out that Black Orchid was a character in um, DC Comics from a long time ago. So this was a character that Neil Gaiman picked up and revived and gave a totally different history to. So in this story, as before, she's a crime fighter and she's a human-plant hybrid. And we find out how she got that way. And we also find out the connections that she has to other people in the DC universe. And I thought that was extremely clever. So Batman is in there. Lex Luthor is in there. Swamp Thing is in there. Poison Ivy is there. Um, the the Floronic Man. There's all kinds of people who just kind of drop in. And they all have very iconic names. Obviously, that was something that they tried to do with plant people. Um, the guy who is her boyfriend, mentor, creator of, of plant hybrid people is named Philip Sylvian. Um, and you just see they go to Ivy University, all these people. There's a lot of things. There's a lot of very clever wordplay and also clever illustrations that work with it. So what happens in the very first chapter is that Black Orchid gets killed. And then we find out that there are others of her essentially cuttings of plants that are growing and one of them wakes up when the first one dies and becomes sentient and tries to pretty much figure out who she is and what she's supposed to be doing and there's another one that is not quite as grown up as she is a little girl and she has to take care of the girl and they all kind of share the identity of the original black orchid who is called Susan Linden Thorne so there's more plant names for you her original name is Linden and then she marries a guy named Thorne so there's the, the big Susan and then there's little Susie and they're being threatened by Lex Luthor because he wants to know about them throughout the whole book. So it's the story of how they escape from him and how she comes into her powers and tries to figure out what's going on and also how she's going to propagate more of herself since the place where the other hybrids were growing gets destroyed. And there's some other subplots that run through it that are really good that involve her ex-husband. So I thought this was a really well-told story and it's done in a very... Um, graphically rich way so she is drawn very very beautifully as this purple naked purple woman but it's totally not gratuitous can you believe it I was really pleased with the way it was done you just kind of see the outline of her body and it's not um, supposed to be sexual at all I love that really wonderful art 
she's purple, beautiful, bright orchid purple and has her, her head has kind of a, um, it almost looks like it's, it's not on fire, but it's, it's got, um, wind coming off of it. That's blowing up. It's very ethereal and she can fly. And when she is speaking, her word boxes on the page are in purple and they change to different colors depending on who she's talking to. So when she meets up with poison ivy, her word boxes are light green. When she meets up with swamp thing, his word boxes are dark green. And this just continues to show who's talking. And I thought this was an extremely effective kind of device. So you could tell, and she's narrating the story all along. And it's a really great way of talking about, uh, the, the story in general is more of about a metaphor for plants and the environment and what people need to do. Um, and the sensitivity, I mean, a lot of this was covered in swamp thing also, but it's kind of reiterated here and it's, it's a mystery too. So I just thought this was a really great book and I understand that there were more after it, but I think that the way Neil Gaiman wrote this, it was intended to end the way it did, which was not with a big bang, but it wasn't with a whimper either. It just sort of ended this particular story and the the new black orchid goes on, but we don't really know what she's going on to. And that's okay. We don't need to know. We just need to know that she made it through this story and then something else is going to happen afterwards. So I like this a lot. I thought it was really good. And um, it's overdue from the library by about two weeks. So I don't know how much money I owe on it. I probably should have just returned it and then gone out and bought it. Because it's probably cost me more than the actual book, but I really, really liked it. The art is just beautiful. It's I'm flipping through it right now, and it's really vibrant. It switches back and forth between really, really bright colors to a lot of almost black and white, and it's very finely drawn. Um, the characters really have wonderfully detailed faces. Lex Luthor looks like Marlon Brando, though. I'm not quite sure about that. Uh, and Batman's kind of cool the way he appears. Oh, and his word balloons are black which is totally fitting. Kind of surprised that Superman didn't show up, but maybe that would have been too much. And there's a lot of um, fun song lyrics that go through here also. So yeah, I really, really like Black Orchid. This was cool. And I can definitely recommend that. One more Neil Gaiman thing. Neil did uh, a podcast. Well, he didn't really do a podcast. He was featured in a podcast and it's one I've been listening to for a while. It's called The Moth. And it's a storytelling podcast from a group that has storytelling events in New York and in Los Angeles. And he did one in New York where he got up on stage. And as with all the moth stories, it's stories told without notes and they have to be true stories. So he tells a story about waiting for his parents in Liverpool Station when he was just a wee lad coming back from a school holiday. And he's a great, great storyteller. Obviously, he's a great writer, but he also knows how to tell a story while standing up on a stage to a group of people. And I just loved it. I thought it was great. So because some people may not be interested in seeking this out and the the moth doesn't keep them up forever, I don't think, I have made it available at the other place where I keep all the files that I have put up for people to listen to. So it's at Storage Vault, storagevault.toucan.com. I'll put up a link to it and then you can listen to Neil Gaiman. And I've put some other stuff up there too. So please feel free to go and browse around the other files. The Ditko thing is still up there. Speaking of Neil Gaiman, there's a bunch of Alan Moore stuff that I put up. There's the Channel Chasers thing that was uh, Fairly Odd Parents. 
and a few other files as well, including the Watchmen limited edition. You know, I had it on the blog for a while, and then um, I think the people who had it up had to take it down, the um, the YouTube-like place that was hosting it. So I still have it in this secret place. So I'll put up the direct link to that as well. But please feel free to get it and download it and watch it. I understand the next one is supposed to be coming out soon. So as soon as I can get a copy in a um, non-DRM protected way so people can actually watch it. I will put that up in my storage vault as well. So I think that's going to be it for now. There will definitely be a lot more things reviewed. I've got other books that I had to renew at the library. Well, at least I did that, so they're not overdue. And I'll be back with them next time. <laughs>